Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. Hello, I'm super excited to share the good news that I have written another book, How to Pay Your Mortgage Off in 10 Years, responds to the cost of living crisis that many people find themselves in. Whether you are paying off a mortgage, you've paid off a mortgage, you aspire to buy a house and have a mortgage, or you know someone who does have a mortgage, this book will have lots of frugal tips and tricks as well as some finance hacks for you. Thank you so much. Yuma Frugalisters and welcome. Today I have a special guest and of course all of my guests are special. This guest is someone who is an author, podcaster and financial planner. He has a lot of knowledge to share about money, as you could expect. But first, I have a favour to ask of you. If you enjoy this podcast and find it useful for you, please pay it forward by sharing with a friend. And even better, please follow The Joyful Frugalista on Facebook and also share the podcast. So Paul Benson is a certified financial planner with over 20 years of experience. He writes Sunday's Ask an Expert column across the Fairfax network of newspapers and he and his work has appeared in a range of different media. He is host of the Financial Autonomy podcast and thank you for having me a guest on there, which focuses on strategies to help you gain choice in life. He is author of Financial Autonomy, the money book that gives you choice. Welcome, Paul. Thanks, Serena. Thanks very much for having me on. Look, I'm so honoured, really, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to share some knowledge with my listeners today. And I know you have a lot of knowledge to share. Oh, no, no thanks. Always good fun to, to, to jump on and, uh, yeah, have a chat. And, yeah, I enjoyed our conversation when you were a guest on, on my <laughs> podcast. So so very happy to uh, return the favour. Well, thank you. We're, we're swapping the hot seats here. But I'm going to start right. seeing you have written a book all about financial autonomy by asking, well, what actually is financial autonomy? Often these days people talk about financial independence. I often talk about financial resilience because I'm in that sort of saving space and I'm often helping people through some really tricky times where they don't have a lot of money. But what is financial autonomy? Very close cousin to financial independence for sure. When we think about financial autonomy, I talk a lot about gaining choice. So financial autonomy is having choice. Now, financial independence technically means You've got enough investment assets that you don't have to work, right? That's, that's the definition of financial independence. You've got enough wealth. Financial autonomy, depending on the choice, might not necessitate that amount of investment wealth. So for instance, if your choice is, or I want to cut down to three days a week work instead of working full time, that's not cutting down to no work, right? So financial autonomy might be able to be achieved by, well, if I pay off the mortgage, then my outgoings are reduced. Therefore, I can cut down to three days a week and achieve financial autonomy. So yeah, think about it. It's, it's choice in life, right? Not having to do a job that you hate or yeah, so, something else that you don't want to do, just having that choice. So, so there is that, that slight distinction compared to financial independence. Yeah, choice is such a big one, isn't it? And you know, there's nothing worse than not having choice. And in my case, having left an abusive first marriage, knowing that I was good with money, that really gave me choice. Now, I'm not recommending that everyone go and leave their spouse, but certainly having a bit of running away money, or as they often say, the, the F-off fund, <laughs> <laughs> certainly helps. But And the same is true with work. And there's nothing worse than being stuck in a job you hate and feeling like you have no options. Yeah. And, and, and I guess the, the 
the idea around financial autonomy came from, as you mentioned in the intro, I've been a financial planner for a long time. And typically when we start talking with clients, you know, one key question is, all right, well, what are you thinking about retirement? You know, when do you want to retire? How much income will you need in retirement? Right. That's not the only objective, clearly, but it's it's a pretty important one when you're thinking about financial planning. And what I found very often is that people, well, I'm not really quite sure. I don't know how I'm going to feel when I get there, you know, and it depends if if the boss is, is not much fun or or maybe I'm enjoying working or maybe a bit, everyone's a bit different, right? And And I sort of got again and again, okay, let's frame it as rather than saying I'm going to retire at 60 or 65 or whatever, how about we frame it as I want to plan to have the option or the choice to retire at, let's say, 60. And then everyone could kind of get on, on board with that. Yeah, okay, let's put a strategy together. So I've got the option to retire at 60. And then when I get to 60, I'll see how I feel. And if I decide to work an extra few years, well, then that just gives us a bit more comfort and a slightly more expensive holiday. I guess I arrived at financial autonomy just through experience of working with people and just finding that that's actually a much better way to do financial planning. Yeah, and I'm really glad you mentioned that thing about the age of retirement because not everyone has an idea. You might want to have that choice and you might be really enjoying your your job or your career right now. And I know there is a trend, particularly in the financial independence retire early movement, to specify a date or an age Mm. at which you want to retire. Like it's, it's almost a competition. Can I retire under age 30? But yeah, it's kind of nice. Like if you like your job, you you might not want to leave. Yeah, exactly right. And I don't know. I mean, if you retire at 30, then what, then what do you do? How do you, where's life satisfaction? I mean, I'm sure different people will find different things to do, but if, if the drive is to retire at 30, then that suggests that whatever you're doing to earn an income now must be making you pretty miserable. So maybe maybe a better objective is to try and think about, well, what could I be doing that would make me less miserable? You know, I'd actually enjoy (laughs) rather than it all being about retirement. But anyway, again, that all circles back to choice. Certainly, you know, we've had some people, for instance, I can think of where they're in pretty often IT type roles that are pretty intense and and they might be working for a US company. So there's all sorts of hours they've got to do and these sort of things. And and, you know, they're just like, look, it pays really well, but I can't be doing this till I'm 60. So, right, what I want is let's put together a strategy so that at some particular point, I can say, all right, I'm giving that away and I'm going to accept a role at half the pay that I'm on now, but it's something that's a bit more sustainable and that balances life a bit better. Yeah, you know, th- th- there's lots of different ways that, that people can do it and different aspirations, and that's all good. You know, we don't want to be prescriptive, but just, I guess, you know, thinking about, yeah, how can we gain that choice? And so, yeah, the Financial Autonomy book and the podcast, it's all with that kind of frame of reference, I suppose. We were talking a little bit before, actually, about prescriptiveness. Like some people seem to need a lot of structure. They need to be told how to set up their bank accounts, what kind of buckets or what kind of accounts to label, how much to save, how to do things. Whereas other people like to be a little bit more free-flowing. How do you manage that kind of difference with your clients? Do you have a view on this? Yeah, we do. I guess we see it not so much at sort of the bank account level, but probably more at the investment level, where for some of our clients, they want us to set up the investments and look after it. Obviously, we, sorry, not obviously, but <laughs> in terms of our license, we can't do that or, and choose not to do that independent of them. So if there's ever any sort of change to an investment portfolio, we need to run it past the client. The client then needs to confirm that we're authorized to make that change and then we do it, right? So usually email or we've got a, an internal platform, that text message. But nevertheless, 
they get an email from us, hey, we've got some surplus cash and we suggest you put it here and then and then they come back and say, yes, approved and then we get it done. So some people like it to be like that, but other people like to DIY things. You know, They might do it on a, a Perler or direct with Vanguard or something like that, for instance, which, are, which there's, there's lots of good platforms out there these days that are, that are quite low cost. So some people like the DIY solution. So we do pretty early on ask clients for their preference on that. The DIYs, it's a little harder for us in the future to work together insofar as we can't see the portfolios and we we can't monitor them and that sort of stuff. So that's a a little trickier for us to add value, but nevertheless, it's the way that some people feel comfortable and and like to do things. We can certainly, you know, we can work that way if if that's the people's preference. Hmm. Well, that's good to hear because, you know, I guess traditionally a lot of people who read a lot about financial planning can be a bit scared sometimes to, to speak to financial planners because they're worried that they're going to be sort of forced onto, say, a self-managed super fund that the, the financial planner might manage or forced mm. into other sorts of investments that financial planner will manage for them and that they won't be able to do it themselves. But it sounds like you're a little bit flexible with this. Yeah, and I think it's a good one that you touch on on super. Certainly, I think self-managed super is, its heyday was is, is behind us. Generally, I think there's less interest and demand in self-managed super from what from what we're seeing. I think there's so many good innovations around investment platforms these days that a lot of the reasons that you used to establish a self-managed super fund for don't exist anymore. Really, the only use case now is if you want to hold direct property and direct property. Anyway, some yeah, people might find that a good use case, but it, you know, it's debatable whether that really is smart or you'd, you'd probably be better holding it, it outside. It was really but, popular about 15 to 20 years ago, I think. Yeah, particularly during the GFC, right? Because the share markets were going dreadful. And so people were freaking out and they're like, right, I want something else. And so self-managed super property, yep. But it's less relevant now. The interesting sort of evolution of that, though, is that a lot of the industry funds now have the ability for advisors to assist clients with them and get paid, which didn't used to be the case. So you know, we're registered with quite a few, Australian Super and ART and Hester and you know the big ones, Host Plus. So that a lot of clients, if we're working with them, if they're with Australian Super, just as an example, and they're happy with Australian Super, then there's, they can work with us and there's no need to change Super funds. We'll just stick with that Super fund. So that does make things a lot easier for people. The other good thing about that too is you, you touched on earlier, you know, people are a bit daunted about potentially engaging a financial planner because of the cost. It is a significant cost to engage a financial planner. The licensing regime and insurance costs, it's, it's expensive to run a financial planning practice. And, plus you know, plus all of the software, time studying too. You know. Correct. <laughs> yeah, that's right. To have the qualifications in the first place, that's right. And you're doing an important job, right? And you can't stuff it up. So it needs to be done thoroughly and competently and you need to have good staff and that sort of stuff. So it is an expensive service to deliver. And for a lot of people, that can be, it can be challenging to afford to access that service. So the fact that now so many planners around are able to, if it's related to retirement, for instance, say, well, look, if you're happy, you've got Australian Super, we can, you know, you have to sign it off, but we can charge, we can bill Australian Super for, you know, it comes out of your account, but for the advice, right? And that can solve the affordability issue for a lot of people, which is wonderful. Yeah, there are some good solutions there. And, and, and to your point, because you're dead right, some people would be concerned about, oh, they're going to make me move my super or and they, no, not anymore. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you will still strike some at the time that you book the appointment. For instance, if you were seeing a new person, you know, you could ask at the, at the outset, look, I'm with whatever super fund. 
I've no intention of leaving. So is that okay with you? And, you know, are you going to be okay to put any fees through there if need be and things? And and you'll find that most will have that capacity these days. Yeah, that's great to know. And, and I'm sure you know that the Banking Royal Commission had some horror stories mm. of this, which is kind of why I'm mentioning it. And obviously you're a very reputable financial planner who, who wouldn't do things just for your own private gain. But this is really good to get that perspective on that as well. Obviously, you clients throughout all kind of ages and stages in their career, and you've podcasted a bit about helping people sort of in their 40s or 50s start to achieve financial autonomy. Mm. Is it ever too late? No. And in fact, that sort of age bracket is really good because often what we find is prior to that age bracket, all of your financial focus really you don't have much to spare because you're just paying down the mortgage, right? And perhaps you've yeah. got you know your kids and it's All a lot the happening. expenses of that's yeah, there's a lot happening, <laughs> right? And it's not until you get into your forties, maybe early fifties, that you can sort of, you know, finally put the head up and and catch your breath, right? And it's at that point that you might be able to go, well, gee, either we've paid off the mortgage or the mortgage is at a, is at a level now where look, we've got some savings capacity here, and it's you know, retirement's still a fair way off, but nevertheless, it's it's visible. <laughs> and so, you know, we've got some other life goals too, perhaps. And so that's a really good age point to start thinking about financial planning, thinking about, right, how can we make the best use of our money? And a lot of financial planning too, and and, and I talk about this quite a bit in the book, and, and I'm sure you will have covered this stuff off as well, Serena, but it's a lot about goals and yeah. what are your goals and quantifying those goals and prioritizing those goals too. And like my, my wife and I just did an exercise on this just on the weekend, just to try and clarify, you know, right, what are you thinking? What am I thinking? And, you know, there was one, in, for instance, that was sort of high on her priority list, but pretty, in fact, right at the bottom of my priority list. <laughs> what a discovery. <laughs> so, so there were some, comprom- <laughs> some compromises that need to be made, right? But, you know, that, that prioritization of goals, uh, that's a lot about what financial planning is. And yeah, and, and as I say, it's, 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 it, that's always applicable, but but certainly can be working and, and making progress on those in the 40s, 50s years for sure. Yeah, and I guess there's big decisions in that age bracket too about whether to continue to accumulate or whether to start to sort of enjoy life and draw down too. That concept of what is enough is a big discussion as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's actually often work we do for the clients. We, we do some financial modelling so we can sort of project here's the way it's going to track. And yeah, we'll often have a look at, well, all right, assuming these assumptions and, and, and we try to use pretty conservative assumptions, you're on track to have $40 million when you're 90. Now, you don't need to have $40 million when you're 90. So let's have a think about this. What if you did upgrade the house or, or, or whatever? There's all sorts of everyone's different, right? But it is helpful. The how much is enough is a really good point. It is really helpful to get an understanding of, well, we're working, our employer's contributing to super, we've paid down the mortgage, et cetera. If we're just situation normal and run this out until age 65, what does that mean when we're 90 or 100? And important to note here, I've certainly seen sometimes late in life, you have high medical expenses, right? So you, you don't want to cut things too skinny. Like I like the Die With Zero book, I really liked, but that I think the author was pretty affluent to begin with. <laughs> and, um, you know, I don't know about die with zero, right? But nevertheless, you can look at it and go, well, as I say, yeah, I need $40 million when I'm 90, right? So maybe, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean helping the kids and, and all sorts of different in- options? So, yeah, having that visibility is really helpful. 
Yeah, there's some great things you discussed there. And yes, you don't really quite know what you're going to spend your money on too, do you? And whether your idea of retirement is to retire early but be super frugal and read library books and never go anywhere, or whether it's having a suite on a cruise ship twice a year going around the world. There's a lot of choices there. And and I know from time to time, people do guesstimate the amount that you need in retirement, but I gather mm. it probably is different from every, for everyone or is there a, a baseline kind it, of figure? It, it is. I would, I mean, just from experience of the people that we talk to and, and bearing in mind the people that come into a financial planning of us, it's, it's probably a slightly skewed proportion of the, of the, the demographic, right? People tend, they've got to have money or they wouldn't have come in in the first place, right? I would say at the low end, 60 grand a year seems to be what people are after, but most commonly sort of 80 to 120,000 a year seems to be where most people land. Often, particularly at that 120, they end up not spending it all anyway, but sometimes it's just, well, I want to know that I've got it. The other thing too, when we do projections is sometimes we might plan for an initial, we normally term it active retirement, so that you might have, let's say, 10 grand a month, 120 a year is your target for the first 10 years of retirement, but then dropping that down to say 80,000 a year after that, because you might plan to do a whole lot of travel early on and then you probably back off a bit as you get a bit older. So sometimes, you know, we can we can do, do those kind of numbers too. But yeah, I would suggest everyone's different and they need to do their own numbers, but, but 60,000 plus, five grand a month sort of minimum. And yeah, most people seem to fall within 80 to 120 a year in my experience. And is that individual or per couple? That is a couple. Okay. That's interesting. It's actually lower than I thought it was. And I'm assuming, actually, one should never assume. Does this include home ownership or at least accommodation being taken care of? It it does assume that you own your home, yes. Yeah, which is a big thing now with mortgages becoming bigger and bigger and longer and longer. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But it, yeah, typically, I don't know, at least what I'm seeing, most people aren't retiring if they still owe money on their house. Yeah, it's a bit of it's a bit of a prerequisite. If if you still owe money on the on the roof over your head, then you probably need to keep working. Yeah, it's an interesting one because I always when it, well when I started writing my book on how to pay off your mortgage in ten years, I kind of made this assumption that my audience would all be millennials and maybe even younger, maybe even Gen Z, because they would be first home buyers. But what I mm. was increasingly finding is that there were a lot of first home buyers in my age sort of late mm. 40s and even 50s, which really has quite surprised me. Yeah, particularly I think, you know, second marriages and, and you know, divorces yeah. and things, that, that can crop up quite a bit. Yeah, you're, you're right. We come across it as well, but I guess generally from a retirement planning perspective, you normally are thinking that, well, by the time you retired, you've got that mortgage knocked off. And, and potentially that might be, well, I'm, I'm selling the, house in Sydney and moving to Newcastle or something like you know there might be a downsize as part of your retirement that helps solve that if need be. Mm. Yeah so you touched on something which was divorce and this is becoming more and more common I guess. Australia having a no-fault divorce system does mean that people don't get locked into unhappy situations and of course it's second time lucky for me. Do you see a lot of clients who are rebuilding? Yeah we do And 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 it is interesting and it's Actually, I don't really know why, but I would say that we probably see more female clients than male clients after a divorce. And I don't really know why, but it's just an observation. And I would say broadly that it's really quite freeing because often the ex-husband was a bit of a dickhead and, and <laughs> blew, the, blew the money and the woman by herself actually has more 
freedom to just, I don't know, be sensible. I mean, look, it's, it's a bit of a generalization, but I can just, you know, a few clients that I work with just sort of spring to mind and it's a bit liberating to not, I don't know, to just be able to, well, look, these are the things that are important to me. I, I just want a home. There's grandkids. I want to be able to be somewhere close to where the grandkids are. You know, those type of considerations, perhaps. Uh, usually family's pretty pretty integral to the whole considerations. And they just kind of want to tick those sort of boxes. And, yeah, it's nice to just do exactly what you want to do and not have to compromise, I suppose. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I can kind of hear you a little bit. Uh, I'd had a big financial goal reset myself, so I so hear what you're talking about. <laughs> you can relate. <laughs> I can relate. I'm not going to comment about what I think of my ex-husband on, on, on a podcast, but <laughs> 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 but you've given some, some broad generalities. Um, I wanted to touch on something else which has been in the media recently, and there's been uh, news of this big, big lotto win, the, the Powerball jackpot ticket, the 200 million won. And of course, there were two winners or two tickets that were winning. And what I found interesting was that everyone I knew bought tickets. I think I must have been the only one in Australia who didn't buy a ticket. Or did you buy a ticket? I well, I, I didn't, but I have to confess, I, I don't normally buy lottery tickets, but I have to confess, I did think, oh, 200 mil. I tell you, my train of thought, and I've done this before, is you know how at the lottery shop, you know how there's the syndicates you can go into? Oh, yeah. I thought, well, for 200 mil, I wonder if I can find a syndicate that's got like 20 people because that greatly increases the chances of winning because there's no, I don't want 200 million anyway, right? So we could get something. And anyway, so that was my train of thought. I should go in and I should try and get, and uh, I never did it. (laughs) So you and me, we were sitting on the sidelines alone, you know, as as one of the few. Well, Um, yeah. But I wouldn't have been against it. It wasn't that it was... uh, Anyway, it, it, yeah, it wasn't that I just by choice didn't buy it. It was just kind of I didn't get around to it. Well, I don't have a religious or fanatical objection to lotto tickets per se, but I guess sort of the more I learn about personal finance, the more I just realise it's not a good use of money. And I always think back to my parents had this 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 little painting that my step-grandmother had done and it was of her husband, Papa Jack, and it was him sitting in his armchair watching the new, watching the lottery with his lottery lotto ticket in one hand and looking really dejected. So, you know, she's an amateur mm. painter, so, you know, she, it's not something that's ever going to win, win the Archies and she's passed now, they both have. But I always think back on that. He was so dejected because once again his numbers didn't come up and I just felt that was such a huge metaphor for life. Like, why wait for your numbers to come up? Like, why not just going yeah. and invest now? I hear you. Yeah. And look, my parents are of a generation where, yeah, they're buying a lot of ticket every week. I think, you know, there just was that generation, wasn't there? Yeah. Uh, I'm with you. I mean, look, it, mathematically, it makes no sense. <laughs> We'd definitely be better off to invest. And so for all the listeners, that's what Serena and I are both encouraging. <laughs> the only thing I would reflect on is when I have bought tickets in the past, and as I say, it's usually some big mega draw that their advertising wins me over, I end up lying in bed for a night or two thinking, man, what would I do? You know, oh, we could do this. We could go on this holiday. We give this money here and there. And it's quite nice to just fantasize about what you might do with the winnings. And so I've always kind of felt, even when I've won nothing, you know what? That was 20 bucks well spent because that bit of sort of fantasy time that I had, (laughs) actually, I got my 20 bucks worth. Now, I would imagine if I bought a ticket every week, that would fade. But anyway, just an observation. So it's worth it to go on a mental holiday. (laughs) For me, it is. Once or twice a year, I reckon it is, yeah. We recently found out that my father-in-law had won a bit of money. I forget how much. It was a couple of grand, I think. About 50 grand. 
50 grand. I didn't realise this oh. much. I'm turning to my husband, Neil. 50 grand. He didn't actually tell anyone. <laughs> we only right. found out recently. He's he, spent he, he it all now. He's worried people would be putting their hand out. Well, they probably would have been. Not from <laughs> us. But I was like, wow, that was interesting. He actually didn't tell anyone. So there you have it. But for those people who have got a big winning, say mm. did end up with winning $100 million in the Powerball jackpot, and they come to, say, a financial planner and going, look, I've just won all this money, and I know not everyone gets financial planning, which is probably why a lot of people who win money end up spending it all, but what kind of advice would you give them? Yeah, interesting. And I can actually, I've had a couple of lotto winners in my career. And one in particular, when it went to (laughs) the year 2000, turn of the century, they had a, I think it was a $20 million draw or something. And anyway, we had a client that won a million odd dollars then back when I was working for an employer. So I can talk from experience. I think still the basic financial planning approach, which is to start with the goals, is the key. So, okay, we've got this lump of money. Now, what is it we're trying to do? Pay off the mortgage won't be an obvious one, but it might be, all right, well, we want to help help the kids get a property somehow or other. Perhaps it's retire, but for a lot of people, it would not be. Certainly, the, the example that I had, neither the husband or wife retired. They did want to send, they, they were born in another country, and so they did want to send some money back to family overseas. Yeah, they had two daughters, so they definitely wanted to make sure that they were looked after. They wanted to ensure that long-term they were secure. So we did some boosting to superannuation to just sort of shore that up. What else did we do? I think they, they, got, a, they got a bigger home, which was interesting because I know a few years later, the daughters moved out and they had this big home and it was just the two of them. <laughs> Empty so, nesters. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, they'd hoped the girls would have stuck around a bit longer, but they didn't. But yeah, I, I, I think, as I say, with a windfall like that, the basic the basic process still applies. What are the objectives? And then let's work back from that. Okay, if that's the objectives, then the sensible things to do is A, B, C, D, right? And if you don't have clarity on the objectives, then you just run it around like a, you know, a chook with its head cut off, right? And that's where you do read of instances of people lottery winnings and they just blow it all in some ridiculous amount of time because they don't, they haven't stopped. So, okay, what's important here? Yeah, they haven't done any planning, right? Yeah, you're right, isn't it? It does come back to the basics. And when you look at that and you look at your bucket of money and you divide it up into those things, it's sort of, I guess the bucket doesn't seem, it doesn't seem as big anymore. It's, it seems a bit more sensible. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm sure if I found a hundred million, I'd still think it was a lot. But when you do think about it, the other people you want to look after and travel you might want to do and, and different sorts of things, it doesn't seem yeah. so overwhelming anymore, does it? No, that's right. And, and yeah, if you can, yeah, get past the initial, the initial shock, I suppose. And, you know, I guess related to that, there's no rush. So similar, I mean, really, we're talking about a windfall amount of money. So it's really much the same as getting an inheritance. Obviously, there's there's far different emotions attached to that, right? But still, there are people that get, just as someone might win a million dollars in the lottery, there are people every day that would be receiving a million dollar inheritance, lots of people in Australia. Yeah, there's no rush is probably the first thing with anything like that. Just take your time. And if it needs to just, if you want to just park it in a turn deposit at the bank for 12 months until you sort of, you know, things calm down, that's not wrong. That's totally fine. Yeah. But then once you get through that period, it is just that, that process that we've talked about. What are we trying to achieve? And then let's let's figure out the strategies that, that are going to make sure that that happens. Yeah. And I think that no rush is a big one because I could imagine it's like, you know, that euphoria, but it's also, as you said, a bit of shock. And, you know, all your mm. life you're, 
your your life has been a certain way. You've had these certain goals and certain things you wanted to achieve, and then suddenly it's like, oh, you don't even have to go to work anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, what are the new goals? <laughs> yeah, and but then if you didn't go to work, what would you do? And actually, would you be happy floating around home? Conceivably not, right? So yeah, it's 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 that self reflection, which is where not being in a rush and taking your time, I think, is really important. You touched on inheritance, and and that's another mm. key time when people suddenly do get a, a windfall and. Sometimes it's more than they expect, whether it's an aunt or another Mm -hmm. relative, maybe not a close one. It it can be, once again, a bit of a shock. What am I going to do Mm. about this? And from friends who've gone through it, it's almost a sense of, how does one say that? Not quite guilt, but not wanting to be too selfish with how they use this gift. Is that your experience? Yeah, I think people, there's often a bit of pressure. I don't want to stuff this up because this is mum or dad worked really hard for this and I can't afford to blow, or not that I can't afford to blow it, but I there's an extra sense of responsibility. So yeah, there's definitely that pressure that that can come with inheritance for a lot of people. Yeah, it is it is an interesting one to just sort of work through. The other the other interesting element I often find about that, and again, just circling back to you know if we do projections for clients, and right, if you keep going the way you're going when you're 90, the example I gave before, there's going to be 40 million dollars. Sometimes I think some instances I've seen where people have inherited quite a lot of money, often by the time they inherit it, it's kind of too late in their life. It seems a shame to me that more people don't think about early inheritances. And if they had more confidence that, look, I'm safe and secure, that that, that there's not more, yeah, distribute a bit out to, to the kids in their 30s and 40s when they're trying to pay off their mortgage and pay for kids schooling and they've got all the big expenses rather than hoard it and then your kids get it when they're 65 at which point hopefully they've done a lot of that stuff their supers okay like at times the inheritance comes in at a stage in life where it's not that useful and so that would just be another observation I guess for for your listeners in their own planning is to just reflect on whether not so much you in receiving an inheritance, but ultimately the estate you leave behind, could you actually be more impactful with some some good planning on that earlier r- rather than your, <laughs> your children having to wait for you to die for that to kind of flow through, especially particularly for people in Sydney, but, but, but Melbourne, Brisbane as well, where property market's so expensive. That A, it's difficult to get in, so there can be issues just around a deposit. But even assuming if you're able to get past that hurdle, then the mortgage is just pretty huge. And we've all seen those sort of compounding type examples. You put this amount in here and 20 years later, it's that. Well, similar thing, if, if an early inheritance meant that 50 or 100,000 was knocked off the mortgage when someone was 30, you know, the compound impact of that through their whole life is just huge, much more impactful than them getting an inheritance when they're 65, you know, so... Anyhow, sorry, I'm just possibly no, going off topic. No, these are really important things to discuss. And then the flip side of that is making sure that there isn't an economic dependency. But we've almost reached the end of this podcast, though. I have one final question to ask you, which is, Dada, do you have a frugalista tip to share? Well, this one's it's a bit out there, but it just one of my little side hobbies is that I'm a beekeeper. Oh, wow. And in fact, we're harvesting honey this weekend which will be the last harvest. So we'll steal this honey and then whatever the bees do from here on in, that's theirs to get them through winter. But anyway, it's a nice little hobby and it's quite interesting and good fun. And 
cross my fingers, I'm sure I'll jinx it and I'll get stung this weekend. But so far, I haven't been stung, which is pretty incredible. I've been doing it for over a year now. Wow. So I can just frugalistic tip. For one, beekeeping is good fun. It costs a little bit to get the gear, but it's not really that much. And honey's pretty expensive. And so you can be self-sufficient in honey. And then it's we just sort of share the excess with neighbours and family and friends. But I certainly know several people. There's a beekeeping club in my local area that I participate in. And a lot of people sell it on Facebook and that sort of stuff. And yeah, local honey is is pretty popular. A lot of people with allergies and stuff like to get honey from their local area. Anyway, as I say, it's a little bit out there, but how about beekeeping as a frugalista tip? It's also good for the environment as well, I'm sure. Exactly right. That's right. We need we need more bees. We need pollination. So, Paul, thank you so much for being my guest. I've put you in the hot seat and I've really learned so much from it. So thank you so much. How can people find you? Sure. Financial Autonomy website. I mean, if, if they subscribe to one of the Fairfax papers, so The Age, Sydney Morning Herald, Brisbane Times, whichever one in, in your city, then every Sunday in the money section of those newspapers, you'll see my column there. Yeah, and the financial planning business is called Guidance Financial Services, so you could always uh, jump on our, our website there as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Serena. What if we You've been listening to The Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. And, of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. Stop.